Well, hello. No pressure today. None. Would you grade my sermon, please, by giving me a job or not? That's just the elephant in the room right now. It's where we are. It's what's happening. Uh, My name is Simon. Uh, So grateful to be here. God has been working in crazy ways. I just keep talking to people, and there's connection after connection after connection. So I don't know what God has been doing, but he has really opened doors for us to be here as a family. Um, My family's up here, Hawkins, Huntley, Hudson, my wife, Annette. Hopefully you got to meet them yesterday. If not, they're going to be here. You can come and talk to them afterwards or in between. Um, But I don't want to belabor it too much because this really isn't about me. This is about Jesus, right? And we want to talk about Jesus because he's more important than all of us, and he's the reason why we even have any connection whatsoever. So I want to pray, and I want to jump into God's Word. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be here. You are working behind the scenes constantly, You are doing things that we can't see, doing things that we don't even understand um, because we have such finite minds, but you are infinite. We trust you. We do know you have a plan. We do know that you're doing something bigger than we can see. Lord, guide us, soften our hearts. Holy Spirit, if there's anything that I've written today that is not from you, I ask that you would take it from my notes, take it from my mind, uh, take it from my mouth. And if there's anything that I need to say this morning for someone here that you would allow me to be a conduit, a mouthpiece for you, that I would let you work through me, Holy Spirit. We love you. Probably sings in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Amen. So, as I talked about my wife, we've been married. It'll be coming on 23 years uh, next month. So that's kind of crazy as it's coming up. And there's one thing that I've learned. Yeah, that you can. It's okay to be happy about that. Like it doesn't happen very often. So. Seems like that's a rarity. It's sad, but it's the truth that we live in. There's something that I've learned over these 23 years is is this. Love is not a feeling that leads to actions, but love is an action that leads to feelings. Let me say that again really slowly and again, because I think it's, there's a subtle difference, but it's super important how it plays out. That love is not a feeling that leads to actions, but love is an action that leads to feelings. See, My wife continually shows me her love for me by how she treats me, how she serves me, and in countless ways, over and over and over again. Um, You maybe have seen the resume in the back, and you've gone through, and you're like, that's a really well-done resume. She wrote that resume. She takes my chicken scratch, and she's like, boy, that looks like a fifth grader wrote it, and then she makes it look good. So she does those things, and she cares for me. She sacrifices her time, her energy, the things that she wants wants to serve me constantly. Like, she helps me be a better pastor, a better father, and a better son. And what I mean by that is, like, she buys the gifts for all of my family members, (laughs) right? And so she then lovingly puts my name on it as if I had anything to do with it. And then when my mom or my brother say, thanks so much for that gift, I say, you're welcome. (laughs) And then I tell her that Annette did it all, and I really have nothing to do with it. These, these sermons, if, if you enjoy the sermons that you hear, and you feel like God is moving through them, and he's touching your heart, I give credit where credit's due. My wife pours countless hours over these sermons. I would say that she probably spends more time praying for these sermons than I do. And I do pray for them, just be clear on that, because I do believe in the power of prayer. And I do believe that God listens to us and he hears us. And as we petition him, he will answer those things. So as 
people's lives are being moved and changed and transformed by Jesus, I do believe it's because my wife prays over these sermons constantly. It's so important. You see, my feelings of love come from the fact that her words are proven by her actions, right? We can say, oh, I love you, but if we don't act that way, do you really love that person? See, they work in conjunction all the time. It's amazing. And here's the amazing part. You know why it's amazing? She doesn't have to. That's great. She didn't have, no one's making her serve me. No one's making her do that. But because she understands God's word, because she understands Ephesians 5 and the principle behind that, she chooses to serve me in that way to reflect Jesus every single day. And so what I get to experience is a tangible expression of the Savior through my wife's actions on my life. And so I see love, I taste love, and I feel love because my wife loves me well. And this is one of the core tenets of the gospel. This is what marriage is supposed to do in Ephesians 5. But our God is a God who serves his people who sees where they are, who puts their own needs before his own. As he sees the people that he creates, the people that he loves, he sees them spinning out of control, spiraling in a a horrible way that they were never designed to be in, that they are looking for love, they are looking for acceptance. And through that, he sees that we are looking in all the wrong places constantly for that love to be accepted wholeheartedly by someone. And we make all these mistakes in that process. And where we're going to land today is, as I like to call it, the hero verse for the day. It's 1 John 3.16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. That's going to be kind of our landing place. We are going to move around a little bit. Uh, We'll be in Romans a bit today as well. But this is the hero verse. And I want to read it real quick. And I want to just kind of talk through it. I want to explain what's going on and why is he writing these things and, and how come he's writing these things. But it says this in 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, great verse written by the apostle whom Jesus loved. He would refer to himself like that all the time, right? The apostle whom Jesus loved, which is kind of a little arrogant, but I'm like, I like, I like the swagger there from John. He's like, I'm the apostle that Jesus loved. He cared about me. He actually asked me to watch over his mom when he was on, like, on the cross. Like all these things. He would be known as the apostle of love later in life, and we would refer to him as the apostle of love. But do you know that John also had another nickname? Anyone know what it is? Sons of Thunder. I'm like, that is a very masculine nickname. I'm like, that is, that's, that's a legit name. Uh, that comes because he was a little wild. He was a little crazy. Uh, there's this moment in John... I'm sorry, in uh, Luke 9, 54. And what happens is the apostles are going, they go to the Samaritan village and they're gonna like, bring it in Jesus, they're gonna talk about Jesus. And the, the village is like, eh, we don't want nothing to do with him. I, we don't care about him, be gone. And so what we have is this interaction with John and his brother. And this is what they then say to Jesus. It says, and when the disciples, James and John saw it, when they were rejected, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And I'm like, or pray for them. 
I mean, there's two options there. You could pray for them and be like, hey, let's try this again. This is a bad missionary strategy. Like, if this is what you do, like, they didn't accept Jesus, so Lord, burn them up. Like, not a good scenario, not the direction that you want to go, right? And so, this is the guy who just wrote the big love thing. This is the guy love everybody. What happens when you've got a guy who's like, they don't love you, let's kill them, to you need to love everyone? You got to ask that question. Well, here's what happened. He was transformed because he was around Jesus. He spent three years of his life with Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, understanding who he was. And the best part is this, Jesus is God incarnate. So he knows what the Lord loves. He knows what the Lord hates. He knows what he is excited about. He knows where he wants his people to go. He knows what makes them weep. Like, he got to see this. I mean, wouldn't we all just die to spend three years with Jesus walking with him? That'd be crazy. And because he saw the heart of Jesus, he saw the heart of God, and he saw God's love, and it touched him in such a way where that love transforms him. And it transformed him to have the same love of the Father. And because the Father loves his children and his creation, he then had a deep love that poured out for others. See how that works? This is what this does. And as you look at the background of 1 John and what's going on, uh, this is, we're in that, you know, chapter 3 section where it's all about, you know, loving one another and how that plays out and how we do that. But the background is actually pretty interesting. As you look at where John is, he's an old man at this point in his life. He is well advanced in his years, and he's, you know, he's kind of looking back. But at the same time, he's overseeing all these house churches that are all over the area. And what's happening is there's these guys that are coming around, and you know, like, like Satan always does, he comes around to mess everything up, right? He wants to cause disorder. And so he, people are coming in, they're maligning the name of Jesus, they're saying that he's not the Savior, they're saying he's not the King, that you got to do a bunch of other things, and it's causing confusion in all of these home churches. And so what John is doing is he is coming in and he's kind of doing damage control at this point. And he's like, man, if we don't come in with truth, these home churches are going to fall apart. And so he comes in and he doesn't come in with a new theology. He doesn't have some new five-step program, like this is what you have to do, and like, oh, there was, oh, we forgot to tell you this one thing. No. What he does is more or less he just goes back to the gospel of John, and it's kind of 13 through 17, and he walks them through what they already know. He brings them back to foundational truth in their life, to know like, I know you're hearing all this, this, No. Come back to what you know. Come back to what Jesus taught us, what he said. See, that's, that's how you fight these lies. Come back to what we know is truth. And so he's reminding them, you already know this. And if you already know what God's word says, if you already know what he has for you, in light of all of that, this is how we live the gospel out. This is how we should then act. This is how we should behave. This is how your life should be structured around this truth. And that's really what he's doing. And so what he does is just before that big verse, our hero verse, he says a couple of things in verses 11 through 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. See, calling them back to the beginning. This is what you know. This is what we taught you. That we should love one another. 
We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So the Bible's great because it's always taking us back to stories to understand bigger truths. Jesus did it all, the, you know, all through the Old Testament. There's all these stories that are pointing to a bigger truth, something that we can understand. And we're a story-based culture. Even today, like, why do we have TVs? Why do we have movies? We're a story-based culture of people and how we hear messages. And so what John is doing in this message, he's bringing them back to a picture that they would have understand. Talks about Cain and Abel. If you know the story of Cain and Abel, this is Adam and Eve's sons, right? And so the story goes kind of like this, that Cain and Abel went to bring an offering to the Lord. Abel loved God with all of his heart. And so when he came to bring his offering, he brought his first and he brought his best. And he loved God. So he's like, I understand that God, that you are the provider. You are the one that loves me. You're the one that gives me any uh, prospering that I have. And so I'm going to give to you my best because I know that you're the one who gives it. And I trust that you will give more if you need to. And so he offers it and God accepts his offering and it's good. See, Cain's relationship was a little bit different. And he was kind of what, just going through the motions, like, well, this is the thing that we have to do, and this is what mom and dad do, so I'm going to do the thing, and so I'm going to bring some stuff. It wasn't his first. It wasn't his best. And he goes through the motions, and he goes to give the offering. What happens? God rejects it. He's like, I'm not going to accept your offering. And clearly, Cain was not happy with that. It actually made Cain angry. And what made it even harder is that his brother's righteousness was the very thing that highlighted his brokenness, wasn't it? And so like, the fact that God even warns him, he's like, Cain, don't do what you're about to do. Like, that's a loving God. Like, I know you're going to do this thing, but I care about you so much. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to call you not to do what's in your heart right now. Well, he couldn't. His heart was producing anger. And hate and malice. And ultimately, that is what leads to murder. That's why it tells us do not hate a brother in your heart because that is the path that goes to actions, right? And so, what we see is like this idea of Cain and Abel, it's about contrast, it's about connecting things, love and hate and life and death. And Cain represents hate and death, and Abel represents love and life. And it's calling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do ultimately. And so what, is, what does Cain do? Ultimately, he decides, I have to get rid of this light that's shining on my brokenness and my wickedness, so I'm going to snuff out that light. And he kills his brother in the process to do that. See, this, this is what happens. Our, light, our lives are meant to be a light and a beacon of God's love. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. If we are image bearers, as it says in Genesis, then we are to reflect that light in what we do. And a lack of love causes you to be self-focused. It causes you to focus on yourself and all about you and what you want and what you need. You see, if we love self, then we will pursue fleshly desires. And hate will build in us when we're confronted with those who love God and his ways. I mean, this isn't something that we see today in the news, right? We don't, we don't see this at all. Of course we do. It happens all the time. If we love God and his ways, then we will live in a way that reflects him appropriately. And righteousness will be the natural outpouring of our lives. And that's what John is getting at. And maybe you you're, you're hearing this, and you're hearing about love and loving others, and you're hearing about loving God so much you want to give your best, and you're willing to lay down your stuff, and suddenly you're like, I don't know if my life looks like that. Because here's the thing. We don't read the Bible. 
The Bible reads us. It reads our heart. It exposes our hearts for who we are and the wickedness that exists in it. And I would say as, as maybe you're going through this and you're seeing like, I just, man, my life, my life isn't kind of exuding that love that you're talking about. I don't live in that way. I, I'm not loving others the way that I should. And what I would maybe suggest is if, you're, if your life is lacking love, if you find yourself to be angry or frustrated most of the time, it might be that you're tapping into the wrong source for the love that you're, that you're desiring. And what you're tapping into is a dry well, if you will. And you're going to the wrong place. And what John is telling us in this passage is that there is a proper place to tap into this love. And it's not a place and it's not a thing. And what he wants to make us understand is a person. If you want this love to flow from your life in this way, if you are not tapped into this person, then you will not be able to have this love in your life. And that's what he's getting at. And even would talk about if you don't have that, that there's a problem. In verse 14, it would say, and we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's talking about where it's leading, that love leads to life and those who don't have it will lead to death. But then he's going to show us what this looks like. And he's going to give us an example. And not just any example, the perfect example. It's love is action. He's going to show us that love is action all the time. And what is that? It's the gospel. It's what the gospel is all about. A loving God that sent his son to show us what love looks like in action. And no one ever has or ever will be able to embody this love more than the person of Jesus Christ. Because if God is love and Jesus is God, then he's the incarnation of love. Now, maybe you're like me and you've noticed there are a lot of hero movies and a lot of hero shows out. You can't get away from it. It's so bad right now that we have tapped every major superhero that we can think of. And we keep getting lower and lower and like, well, we run out of this hero. We've done Superman and Spider-Man and Batman and Iron Man and Captain America. Now we're like third level. Now we're doing like Squirrel Girl and like that's the thing that we're going with. You laugh, that is an actual character and it's an actual comic. And they are now developing a cartoon around Squirrel Girl. I'm like, why? We can stop. It's okay. Why are we so fascinated with heroes? Why is it something that we're so into? Well, the reality is this is because we understand that heroes do something. They don't sit idly by. As they see an oppressed group, as they see a marginalized group, as they see someone who can't defend themselves, who can't step into the fray, the hero does it for them. The hero steps into the danger. The hero takes the hit. Jesus is our hero. He steps in. He sees us and realizes that we are marginalized because of sin. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. So what does Jesus do? He steps into the slot where we can't. And he provides the rescue that we desperately need. Now, if we're going to talk about the gospel, if we're going to talk about what salvation looks like and how that works, we have to be on the same page. We have to have the same definition or else we're just thinking different things, right? If we don't have defined things, then we don't know where we're going. So what I want to do is I want to just walk through the gospel message. I want to walk through the truth of what happened on the cross and why Jesus needed to come. But I don't want to give you my opinion because my opinion's kind of worthless. 
God's word is more important. So I just want to walk through God's word and what God's word says about the gospel so we can understand it. And maybe you'll figure out where I got it as I get all the way through and there's a name for it. But we're going to start in Romans in 3.23. We need to understand our current state and where we are and what's going on. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who sinned? All. all. And the, 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 the Greek word there is everyone. It's all. Like there's no hard way to break that down. It's all. All have sinned. What is sin? Sin is at its, at its core level. It's just trusting God and believing God. And so what I mean by that is if God says, this is bad, don't do that, and then you do that, you're not trusting God, and that's sin. If God says, you should do this, and then you decide not to do that, that's not trusting God, and that's sin. And it's saying, I have a better way. I don't think you're smart enough that you're right, that you know what you're doing, God, and I'm going to do it on my own. And that's really what we're saying when we sin. So we've all sinned at some point. We can all, like, we have to raise our hands. We all know like we've all done that at some point in our life. And not only have we committed those sins, we've inherited those sins from Adam and Eve, right? Totally depraved. But then it says we've fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? I mean, fallen short of the glory of God. God is perfect in all ways. There is no sin amongst him whatsoever. His standard then is what? Perfection. If we are to approach God, if God cannot allow sin to remain in his presence without punishing it, if we bring sin there, then we can't go. That's so we've fallen short. We've missed the mark, if you will. We can't meet his perfect standard to be in relationship with him. Well, you're like, well, that's a bummer, but so what? Well, all right, thanks for telling me my state of where I am in humanity. Well, let's just go over to Chapter 6, Romans 6, 23 actually tells us what the problem is. So we have a problem now. The problem is this, for the wages of sin is death. Well, darn, now we have a problem, don't we? So now we know that if we're all sinners, there's a wage. And I love, I love the term that's used here, wages. We think about that with jobs, don't we? That I've worked a job, and so because I've worked this job, I'm going to get paid a wage. It's what you've earned. So our lives have earned, because of sin, death. That is a physical death, and that is a spiritual death that's taken place that we are going to deal with. And now it's kind of a bummer. Like, oh, we're all in this state. This is the problem. This is ultimately our outcome. If we stay on our current trajectory, we are going to head to death, a physical and spiritual death for forever. That's bad. That's not good. So what happens? Well, we get to see love in action. Go to Romans 5. Romans 5, 8 says this. Anytime it says, but God, that's like, those are my, my favorite verses. But God. So in light of all this garbage, in light of all these problems, but God. Once again, just point out that God is the one doing the work. God is the one that's solving the problems. It's not us. But God shows, there's some action coming, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. He lives out that love in action. He shows us 
by dying. He becomes a substitution. The idea that we earn death, we earn God's wrath, we earn God punishment, but Jesus steps in and becomes a substitute for us, takes the place that we were supposed to be in. He goes to the cross, he hangs on the cross, and he dies for us. He absorbs that wrath for us. So we don't have to because God is love and he loves his people and he cares for them and he knows that we can't do it. So Jesus becomes the hero who dies in our place. It's a beautiful thing to know that, that he does that for us, that, that it's not about us. So how do I know that? Because while we were still sinners, the idea, the Bible would say that we were dead in our trespasses. What do dead people do? Thank you. It's such a very, I, I, I tee it up really easy. Nothing. Dead people don't do anything actually. And so what we see is that God is like, I know, and so I will take care of the problem. I will do what needs to be done. And so he steps in while we were dead, while we would say we were enemies of God. He dies for us. He takes our place. And what happens is there's a response that God calls us to. And someone say, oh, finally, now it's about what I get to do and how I can do it. And I get to be a part of the salvation process. And look at, look at what I did. It's not what you think. It's really actually um, more about humility than anything at this point. And so Romans 10 and verse 9 would say this. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm. I love this. So what do we do? We confess with our mouth. We proclaim. We make a proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And what do we mean by that? that I'm not God, that I'm not in control, that Jesus is Lord, that he is in control, and I submit to him. See, we don't think that way. We don't have lords and ladies and kings like, you know, they used to a long time ago. So this is hard for us to understand, but the king has full rule and reign. And that's that tension that we're always fighting with, that we would be in control, that we would be the ones calling the shots. And when we say Jesus is Lord... We are handing that authority over to him because we know what we've earned in our own authority, right? Then it says, if you believe in your heart, what does that mean, that that God raised him from the dead? Well, what it's saying is this. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe that he died. Three days later, he rose. And what did he do by rising from the dead? Conquering sin and conquering death, showing that he is more powerful, that he is God right? That there is, there is a solution that has been done. And if you believe that, it says very clearly, and I love it, it's simple. You will be saved, period. You don't have to go through all these hoops. You don't have to do all these magical things. You don't have to be a really good person. You don't have to give a bunch of money in the tithe bucket. No, you confess, you believe, you're saved. That's the sim- simplicity of the gospel. You know why he puts the bar low? We need the bar low. We're not smart people. Like, just make it as easy as possible, God. And he's like, I did. I'm doing it all. Just open your mouth and believe. That's all you got to do. And it says this in verse 13 in uh, chapter 10. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Who can be saved? Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord. Isn't that good news? So then it moves into some promises that we have. Go back to 5. Chapter 5 in Romans. Chapter 5, 1. Therefore... 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is great. Justified, that we've been made just. We've been made right. Where once we weren't right with God, now we are right with God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That we've placed our life in his life. And so when God sees us now, he sees the life of Christ. Isn't that good? And it then says this. Where once we were enemies with God, at war with God, now we have peace with God. Isn't that the thing that we're looking for all the time is peace with God? We want to be connected to God. We want to be in relationship with God. We want to be in a spot where we actually can sense and feel and know that it's a loving father, not some horrible judge. This is what it's saying. This is what he's doing if you've placed your life in Jesus Christ. It would then go on in 8.1, say, therefore there is... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer condemned by our actions because Jesus absorbed those. Again, if it's in who? Jesus, right? That's the big idea. And so then I want to land the last section in Romans I want to hit on is is the hope. This is the hope that we have. This is what we cling to. This is what allows us to get through the day. This is what allows us to know that no matter how bad it gets, we have hope. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Like, I love that last part. Nor anything else. I've named everything, but if I miss anything, everything in creation, nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The enemy wants you to believe that you can lose your salvation, that you're not good enough, that you can't do it, that there's more to be done. No. You've placed your faith in Jesus. You are saved. And nothing can remove you from God. You know why? Because no one's more powerful than God. And no one's going to pry you out of God's hand. Amen? Amen? All right. Like I said at the beginning, love is not a feeling that leads to action, but love is an action that leads to feelings. Feelings come and go. You don't trust your feelings. You know why? They're based out of circumstances. You know what aisle I hate the most at Target is the one with all the signs. Follow your arrow. Believe in yourself. Trust in yourself. Faith here. Like, stop. It's all a lie. We know that if I believe in my heart and I follow my heart, I'm going to get in trouble because that's the thing that got me in the sin problem in the first place. If I'm going to trust my feelings, that means if my wife is, you know, not that she was ever been, you know, anything but kind and loving to me, but if we have an argument and I'm not happy with her, well, I guess I should leave because I don't feel like I love her. No, that's ridiculous. But yet we, they write them so well and the art's so great. We hang it on our wall and we're like, oh, what a great mantra. At our church, we mock that statement all the time. It's just not biblical. But what we see is this, is that God's actions on the cross prove his love for us. So you're like, well, I don't feel like God loves me. Listen to me. You don't have to because he's shown you that he loves you. And as you read that he's shown you that he loves you, you will then feel that he loves you. And as you feel that he loves you, you will respond to the God that loves you. Do you see how that works? Like, he's given us all the evidence that we need to understand that he loves us, but we just don't read this thing. Like, well, someone just give me my sound bite. I need my 124 characters to know what God thinks about me right now. No. 
This tells us that he loves us. It's the evidence, it's the proof that he is a God that loves his people and has gone to great lengths to reconnect them to himself. That's the beauty of it. Like God, God cannot love you any more than he already has. Think about that. When he says, I gave my best. What's better than best? Nothing. That's the whole point. Like, like, well, I'm waiting for God to love me more. He ain't going to love you more than best. He ain't going to love you more than his perfect son. He's not going to love you more than coming down to earth and dying in your place. Now, does he continue to love us? Of course he does. He's a good father. But if you keep waiting for this, oh, God's got to love you more. No, he's showing you the pinnacle. That's the mountaintop. It doesn't get any better. There's nothing in this world that actually is better than that is the big idea. And so in, in 316, it says that we can know love. And, I, and this is what I love. Um, I, I love shiny objects. Uh, that's just me. I, I, I'm drawn to them, whether that's, you know, new toys or cars or whatever it may be. I love shiny things and I'm drawn to it. And I like cars a lot. And I love reading about cars. And I love the horsepower and the torque and, you know, the zero to 60. And I love just like, oh, man, look at the interior and all the gadgets and how it works. And I can read about it and know it, right? I can know all about it. I can name the stats off really well. But the word that John is using to know is so much more than the word that we have in the English language. Because here's where it's great. It actually means that we can experience love. You know what makes more fun than reading about a really fast car that you want to drive? It's sitting in it and experiencing it. You can smell the leather. You're like, mmm, God made leather good. And he made cars go fast. He made smart nerds make things go fast the way I wanted to because I can't do it. I don't know the math to be an engineer. But he allows me to experience that. And what he's saying in this is you don't just need to read about God's love. You don't just get to kind of like go through it. You can experience, you can have that love in your life. That's the beauty of what John says. Like, it's not some far off thing. It's a personal, tangible thing that you get. That's good. And and this is how we live now in light of that. What do we do with this? It's, It's great to read God's word, but if we don't actually apply it to our lives, we've just done a history lesson. And I think we need to make sure we, we understand the context, we understand the history, but we have to move to where it actually applies to who we are as people and what we do and how we live. So because of this love, we can live this love out in our lives now. Where we once couldn't, now we have the ability to reflect this love correctly. Why? God has given us a new heart that beats differently than it once did. And so it's the it's the root of who we are. He's, he's dug up the old root, the old sinful root, and the things that it wanted to do. He gave us a new root that produces new fruit. And fruit is action in our lives and how we live those things out. You see, the more we understand the gospel and what it costs for us to have the salvation that we have, the more gratitude we'll have. The more gratitude we have, the more it will cause us to love God. The more we love God the more we'll submit to God. The more we submit to him, the more we look like him. The more we look like him, the more that the world sees Jesus. The more that the world sees Jesus, the more they'll experience the love of God, a love that draws men and women to him. Could you imagine if we lived this out on a regular basis, the impact that it would have in this community? Let's get a look at your work, with your neighbors, with your family, with some rando that you meet at a coffee shop? Could you imagine that? 
This is what drew people to Jesus because he lived out the love of the Father and people flocked to him. You see, my hope would be is that the world would see Jesus through our lives, but it entails something, something that we don't like to do and something that we don't like to talk about. It's laying down our lives for others. Look, I'm in America. It's about me. Well, I know, but it's not about you. See, the word that he'll use uh, in 16 and 316, our hero verse, is that we ought to lay down our lives for others. What does that mean? It means that we are obligated. In light of what Jesus did, we are now obligated to live in this way. That we would put aside aside our desires for the benefit of others. Like, well, that doesn't seem right. Philippians 2, 8 would actually talk about the humility of Jesus, that he left the throne room of God where he was worshiped perfectly and took on the form of man. He humbled himself and became a man. That's a humbling statement. Like, oh, you, like, you became us and that's like super humiliating? Yeah. Yeah, when you're God, it is. That's the idea. And that what did Jesus do? He said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve, right? So he put aside his needs, his wants, his desires to serve those that couldn't serve themselves. The one person who deserved to be served, the one person who deserved to have everything about him because he's perfect, didn't. Understand this. Jesus will never ask you to do something that he hasn't already done perfectly himself. He gets it. He understands us. And because he never sinned, because he was perfect, he stepped into that the right way. He shows us what it looks like to live out the love of the Father. And this is where it gets hard. We have to lay down our preferences. I'm not saying we lay down our, we don't compromise the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. Like, be really clear on hearing me there. But we would lay down our preferences, the things that we want over someone else. Why? So God would be glorified. When you start realizing this world isn't really about you and it's about the glory of God, it gives you a different perspective where you can do this and not worry about not getting your way and whatever it is. Because if the most important thing is saving lives, they would hear the gospel, they would surrender to him and follow him. Everything gets in perspective when we're talking about life and death. We just don't think about it that way. And that's what we're doing. We put others' needs first. God put other needs first when it came to our salvation, and we're being called to do the same. I want to I press a little bit here. If you're not living this kind of love out, this is a mirror to your understanding of the gospel, how you live your life. And we don't like to talk about that because if, if, if you don't have that kind of love and you do have that kind of hate and anger towards others and, and how you respond and even brothers and sisters in the church, which is the context with John's writing here, it shows what you believe and what you know about the gospel. Like, well, if it's all about me, then Jesus just died for me. He died for the whole world that all would be saved. It, it's more than just you. And it's hard. I, I fall into this all the time. I constantly have to wrestle through this, like, man, I, I got to put down my needs for others. If God's most important, I got I to gotta lay that down. It's hard. See, this love in our life is the evidence of Jesus who's changed your heart and has transformed us into his image. John would continue on in chapter 4, 
8 through 11, he would say this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If the Holy Spirit is God, he resides in our heart. We would live this way, right? Because he's love, love resides in us. We should be living that out. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also, there's that word again, ought to love one another. Think of it this way. God is calling you to something greater than yourself. And that's good. That's a good thing. This is what happened to the son of thunder that transformed him into the love, the apostle of love. That's the big idea. And my question today is this, as we kind of start to, to round it out. Is this love evident in your life? I can't answer that for you. Well, maybe I can, depending on how you treat me. But I can't really answer that for you, can I? You have to answer that question. Is the love that we're talking about today, a self-sacrificial love that looks like the love of Jesus, evident in your life? I don't know. I don't know most of you. I mean, we've only met a little bit here, but you know. If it's lacking, I would ask you to repent. Repent of whatever hate or anger or malice that's in your heart that's causing you not to do that. Repent of the self-centeredness that comes from us wanting to be in charge that ultimately leads to death, as John tells us. And I would, and I would say this. So if you're Christians, repent. You know why? Because it says if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive. Now, if you're here and you've never heard this before and you got tricked by a parent or a spouse to show up, like, we're going to get breakfast after service. And then you're like, oh, you tricked me. And maybe you're here and you're like, I don't want to be here. You're here. God's sovereign. And so I would say this. You just heard the gospel message. You just saw our current state. You just saw the problem. You just saw what Jesus did for love and action. And I would call you today to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He loves you. He cares for you. He is bringing you back into relationship with him and you will be with him for eternity. Do not let the day go by without engaging God. Because if you're feeling something right now, that is the Holy Spirit prompting you. Don't turn that away. And I would love to talk with you. I know any of the pastors here would love to talk with you. If, if you're in that spot and you're thinking those things and you want to pray with someone, we would love to do that with you. But I would say this, like, let Jesus transform you. Surrender to the Lord that we call our Lord. Let him transform you. And here's the thing. This is a process, right? We don't arrive You'll be right when you're dead. We're all going to get there, right? When we have our glorified bodies, it'll be great. But right now, we're struggling in a fallen, broken world as we press through it. And it takes time. And we are becoming like Jesus one degree after another, aren't we? And we're going to mess up. And God's grace is sufficient for all of those mess ups. And all you have to do is continue to confess those things to him. I want to end with what John says in 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Let your words match your life. Let me pray. Jesus, I ask that uh, if you're working in the hearts of men and women right now and you're convicting people, that you would just keep pressing in hard. That if there is an area in someone's life that need to repent of a sin, that need to repent of a broken area, that you would open their eyes to that. That they would believe the truth of the gospel, that you died for our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. And there's no more commendation for any of us who have placed our faith in you. That nothing can remove us from your love. But you are calling us to something greater. You've called us to be on mission. You've called us to be like Jesus. And you've called us to take Jesus to the world around us. Let these brothers and sisters in Jesus become closer to you. Have freedom from the sin in their life that's been dominating them. Let us not be like Cain. Lord, I ask that uh, for those who don't know you, that today would be the day that they would come and surrender their life to you. They would bow a knee. They would worship you more fully. Lord, you are good. Your love is powerful. And you are sufficient. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. And I thank you that you've given me the opportunity to share this message with them today. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.